Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. And we are here today, uh, season four, episode six of the Being Known Podcast. And uh, today we're going to talk about a very lighthearted subject of trauma and shame, um, the madness of self I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's it, it happens to the best of us sometimes, and I am the best of us. So it happens, and I was gonna it say, happens you, a lot. You had to, you, you had because you, you had to keep me from saying, and it happens to you yes, too sometimes. Yeah, I, I I can't give you a gap because if I do, I'm going to get insulted. <laughs> I've learned <laughs> the madness of self perpetuation. <laughs> Wait, could you say that one more time? The madness of self. Perpetuation. And then, no, I won't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, my gosh. Listen. No, it's, it's okay. That's why I get paid the big bucks to pronounce words <laughs> improperly. It's good to be here with you again, Kurt. Um, so let's jump right into on. this. I know we, we want to start off by talking a little bit about shame, uh, something mm. that um, for those of you who aren't familiar with, Kurt has written a whole book on and the anatomy of shame. So I, it's, a, it's a great resource for you if you haven't had an opportunity to read that book. I highly recommend it. And it's a great way to jump into this subject. Go ahead, Kurt. Well, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, it's, sometimes we might say, well, gosh, uh, when it comes to trauma, you know, and you talk about shame, they, they almost feel redundant in the sense that like, well, what trauma doesn't have shame? And I think what, we, what we're trying to do in this episode is just to highlight um, the way shame shows up in particular in those events that we have experienced as being traumatic. And recognizing that we can feel shame under certain circumstances in which those circumstances turn out not to be traumatic. But shame in many respects uh, is often uh, wielded by any situation, no matter how large or small, as one of evil's mechanisms of traumatizing us. And, you know, we, we talk about the, the title of this episode, uh, Trauma and Shame, the Madness of Self-Perpetuation. Um, we're going to highlight just a, a couple of features of shame that stand out in trauma. And one of them that we're really going to pay a lot of attention to is this this way that shame tends to, you know, we, we encounter it and then it tends to repeat itself. We encounter it and then we, I feel ashamed about something that has happened. And then I feel ashamed that I feel ashamed mm -hmm. about this. And it just snowballs on itself. Just to review, we've, we've started with this concept of trauma and the mind in general. And then we were breaking that down. First, we talked about trauma and the brain. Mm -hmm. In our last episode, we talked about trauma and the body. And with shame, trauma and shame, we're really talking about how shame plays itself out along all of these lines in our physicality, in the activity of our brain, how that affects the disintegrate, how that, that shapes and strengthens the disintegration of the mind along the way. And one of the ways that we begin to talk about this is just to remind our audience that shame, first and foremost, is a neurophysiological event. It is a thing that begins 
in our body. Now, we might say, well, gosh, it doesn't, didn't really begin in my body. It began with, you know, my uncle perpetrating sexual abuse. And that's not untrue. But the way that we first encounter shame, even in that act of abuse, even in the act of being mistreated by a teacher, being traumatized by in a car accident, there's this sense in which my sudden awareness of being overwhelmed as a human being can easily evoke this state of vulnerability. We have talked in other episodes about the creation narrative. And at the end of Genesis chapter two, this notion that the man and his wife were naked and unashamed, that their being unashamed is significant because it's absent in the very place where they could most vulnerably be hurt by it in their nakedness. If we were to say, well, they were fully dressed and ready for work and they were unashamed, well, no one would be surprised at that. But we take note that they were vulnerable Mm -hmm. and shame was not in play. We protect ourselves in no small part because we are aware that at any given moment, shame could be in play for us. And as it turns out, as we've, you know, in the old playground uh, adage of sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. As it turns out, you know, it's often, it's just not, that's not true. Right. Right? Names actually do hurt me as much, if not more than sticks and stones do, because those names actually, not just because they take place in my mind, but because they affect my body as much as sticks and stones do. So shame, when I experience it, when I encounter it, is not just an emotional event, even though I experience it as such. It is an event that I feel, but that is mediated through my physicality. It takes up residence in our bodies. From the last episode, we talked about the autonomic nervous system quite a bit. And we recognize that the autonomic nervous system does a lot of things quite automatically, and it helps regulate our emotional states, regulates our function, but does so through our body. And with that polyvagal theory, that whole notion of staying within the window of tolerance and the notion of activating and engaging our social engagement system, all those things are ways for us to mitigate our experience of shame and to protect ourselves against it. And Trauma has some features that shame really kind of latches onto, that when we are in these positions of great vulnerability being overwhelmed and we don't have access to agency to change that, those two pillars that define our perception of trauma, shame steps in, first of all, as a disintegrating force. We've talked here before on occasion about how when I'm in that place of shame, I can't connect my thoughts to my feelings, to my perceptions, to my physicality. I'm often, I disconnect often. I can, my, my body's memories, for example, get housed somewhere that's separate from my memory of the event itself. And as such, I can 10 years later be someplace where I, my body remembers something is primed for something. And my body starts to have a reaction And of course, because I can't, I don't always understand where that's coming from. I can often, when I don't understand something about a lot of things, like I feel ashamed. It evokes shame. And so I don't just have the reaction. Shame also takes advantage of that disintegration. And because of that, 
I tend to isolate myself even further. This is another thing. So we have disintegration. We have isolation is the other thing that shame takes advantage of. Shame depends upon isolation in order for it to flourish, in order for it to be strengthened and activated. It needs me to be cut off from others and cut off from myself. Isn't shame sometimes the impetus of isolation? I mean, isn't, I mean, isn't, isn't shame, people feel shame and shame causes them to isolate? Hence the self-perpetuation. Yeah. Right. That self-perpetuating feature of shame takes place in all three of these. Well, we mentioned too, the disintegration, you're right, and the isolation. That that isolation is something that I turn to to cope with shame in the first place. Yeah. Exactly. And the very moment that I then even imagine coming out of my isolation to look at you in the eye, I can't imagine that. It's too overwhelming. And so I, it drives me further into my isolation. And then when something else happens that re-evokes that feeling or that experience, I'm once again ashamed and I'm going to work even harder. Somehow i got to work harder to keep that from overwhelming me. This self-perpetuation, this notion that it begets itself, yeah. is something that is quite striking in the sense that, you know, we, we talk about joy being something that also begets itself, but it requires effort. It requires intentionality. We have great, I have great joy being in your presence. But I have to, it, it, it's kind of like we have, I have great joy in preparing a beautiful meal that we sit down to, and there's great joy. But if I want to, you know, that joy, if that's going to happen again tomorrow, like it's not going to happen automatically. Like we got to wash the dishes and we got to get the meal ready again. Like we're going to have to work to this. My joy of the meal causes me to want to have the joy of the next meal, but I had to put work into that. Shame doesn't require this. I feel shame and it requires very little effort for that shame to be exacerbated and for it to be strengthened and repeated, perpetuated. So there's an intensification of the feelings associated with the trauma, like the event itself. What happened to me? Why didn't I do something different? Why, how could I have stopped it? All those kinds of things. And the shame is infiltrating all of this. The very act of turning our attention toward it. I want to do something about it. But the moment that I do, I start to feel it. And so I once again want to turn away from it. And so when I do all these kinds of things in my mind in isolation, in the absence of anyone who's coming to help me, it tends to reinforce all of those disintegrating properties, including our coping responses. And at some point, my coping responses start to run out of steam. And that's when we discover that I can't get out of bed in the morning because it would take too much energy. Or I find that I'm at work, and even though I love my work, I can't focus my attention on my job. Or my relationship with my parents, or my relationship between my parents and my children is such that it's too overwhelming. And now I'm thinking even like, I, I, I don't even want to go there for Christmas at all because there's, way, there's, there's just way too much history of what's happened in the trauma between my parents and, and me or my, my parents and my siblings and so forth. And it's just, it's way too much for me. And so I 
turn away from this and disintegrate myself, cut myself off from family and, and even and even from myself. And we talked in our last episode about how one of the things that trauma does with our bodies is that it distorts our capacity to perceive things as they really are. My perceptions are all off. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't feel off to me. I'm reading them the best they can. And in fact, I'm reading them the best they can in order for me to survive the moments. But they just feel off. And I assume that what's off is not my perception. I assume that there's something wrong in the universe. If I could just get my parents to do this, if I could just get myself to do that, that I'd be in a very different place. And so... The way I tell my story about the story, you know, about the, the, the story that I think that I'm living in, it that all gets distorted. And that has implications for the choices that I make. Those choices sometimes happen with everything as simple as like, well, you know, I um, I don't tolerate my awareness of what happened to me when I was a teenager and a young adult in this body. And so I'm going to make sure that nobody gets close to this body. And so I do whatever I can to put on as much weight as I possibly can to keep people from getting close to me. Or I'm going to make sure that Nothing happens to me like what happened to my brother because he was, quote unquote, lazy, according to my dad, who would beat him to a pulp. And so I'm working 80 hours a week. Now, my family never sees me, but my family has the house they need, and the clothing they need, the food they need, the vacations, you know, to the Rockies every February that they need. But they don't have me. And frankly, neither do I have me. And so I then have all these, what we would call microaggressions turned toward ourselves. You know, um, I'm um, reading, a, reading a book called Gentle and Lowly. And uh, for the life of me, I'll have, to, I'll have to get the author's name. Gentle and Lowly. And he is exploring Jesus' words in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11, where he says, All of you who labor and are heavy laden, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you know, Pep, I read that, and as I've been reading through this book, I it's really come to me. Um, uh, I'm actually, I'm actually really pretty hard on myself all the time. Now, uh, anybody who, like my wife would say, uh, that's not really a mystery to me, Kurt. Uh, but even sh- if, 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 I were to, if I were to unpack it, I, I would say not, I, I'm not even aware of the, of, of the number of micro moments in which I am hard on myself throughout my day. Death of a thousand cuts. Just exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, we have oh by the way, Amy has just uh, chimed in that Dane Ortland. Dane Ortland, thank you, Amy, uh, is the author of this book, Gentle and Lowly. You know, we we have these traumatic events 
And what shame does is it reinforces it with this, like, with this, you know, with this death of a thousand cuts. I, I can't tell you, like, the number of patients that I have, I'm thinking of one in particular who's just worked so hard over a long period of time that I've been working with her, in which for, uh, for many years, it was, it was still uh, difficult for her to not uh, want to answer the question, if I had only done this, if I had only done that, what if I'd done this, what if I'd done that? And even though it, it is framed as, as a question, well, if I had only, then might I not have, what sounds at first glance like a question is really a statement, which is that like, I didn't do it right. I didn't do it right. I didn't do it right. There's something wrong with me. Something wrong with me. And this is one of the things that, this is, this is how shame often piles on, as it were, in the wake of the traumatic events that we've encountered. And, you know, in Ezekiel's text, we read of how God is going to take Israel's heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And, you know, you hear about the notion of the hardening of the heart uh, throughout the biblical text. We read about Pharaoh in, in the Exodus accounts. Don't harden your heart against the Lord your God. We hear this throughout uh, the Old Testament. And I always thought, like, well, you know, hardening your heart, it just, it's just kind of a matter of, uh, like, well, I'm just going to kind of double down and just not do what God wants me to do. That's me hard my heart. Like, I'm going to kind of shake my fist at God. And I'm going to, like, no, I won't obey uh, that's that's one of the ways that I harden my heart. But you know, the other way, and I think that there's you know there's several ways that we can do this. But one of the ways that I harden my heart is through this death of a thousand cuts, because it's not somebody else who's out there in the world saying to Kurt, "You didn't do it right. You didn't do it right." No, this is me. Mm-hmm. And what I'm doing is the same kind of hardening that takes place when people kind of over time tamp down with their footfalls a, you know, a, uh, you know, just a dirt road with enough footfalls hitting the dirt road, it becomes hard as rock. And with my own internal dialogue, I am responding to my own trauma with that same kind of pounding, that self-inflicted microaggression. I remember, uh, you know, I, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was like, 11 years old and I'm at a church camp and like, it's, it's the, it's the perfect time for hormones and, uh, adolescent, pre-adolescent, uh, embarrassment to kind of be put on full display. Like who knew that at Quaker Canyon camp, right. That like it, you know, there, there, there are elements of it internally that weren't very Quaker, but they felt very much like I was in a Canyon. And uh, I'll, I'll, all I remember is, uh, that I, I can't remember the guy's name, but like, so we're, we're 11 years old and it tells you, like I'm 59 and that I am gonna remember this with this kind of clarity tells you something. Yeah. Her name was Helen and she was the most exquisite 11 year old, right? This, this, this was an 11 year old's version of Eve, I'm sure. And there was, and I can't remember the other guy's name, but there was some other dude who had a crush and Helen and he were a thing. And, you know, I mean, even as an 11 year old, I'm thinking, oh gosh, I want my Helen. And so there was another girl there that I, I can't remember what her name was, uh, but I, I, I kind of took a liking to her. And so, you know, with all the courage that I could muster, 
I asked one of my friends to ask her if she might like it. Of course, I because this this is how much courage I had. And I remember, like, I was within earshot of that brief conversation. My friend was kind of like, you know, he was like he was for me and so forth. And 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 her response was not one of like, oh, that's so sweet. I'm I'm sorry, I I don't. But like, you know, tell I, you know, I I think he's really lovely. Like, no, it was kind of like this. Uh, no. Now, you know, I, this, is not, this is not a traumatic event with a definition of trauma. But what I do in my mind, from that, you know, from that moment on, it's like, oh, no, okay, so I, I'm learning my lesson. Like, I'm not going to do that. Like, like, you don't, you don't even, you're not, not even like by proxy do you not, you, do, you don't say. Because uh, you don't want that to happen. But it doesn't keep me from continuing to say it in my head. Like, no, you're not wanted. You're not, you're not interesting. Right. You're not, oh, all the words mm-hmm. that, that we can use. And so, like, we had these middle, middle school experiences. And then, you know, like, we like to talk about when I was, uh, I, was, I, was having, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who was an attorney. We were in our early 40s at the time. And so, at this point, we were, like, 10 to 12 years into our profession. And he was already, he'd already made partner at his firm. I mean, he's just really bright, articulate, really effective at what he does. And I was doing okay. And, and we were having this conversation about, like, where we are in our profession. And... I said, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of getting tired of continuing to go to medical conferences and uh, always feel like I look around and think like I must be the dullest pencil in the box. Oh, Kurt. I've got to be the dullest pencil in the box. And he said, I know. And, th- and this is a guy like just a wonderful guy. And he said, like, I'm kind of tired of being the guy who even as a partner, I'm tired of being the guy who, when new clients come in and have a meeting with me, right, a potential, you're going to be a potential client, meeting with me, like, I'm thinking we have our conversation, and then they say, so now can I speak to, to the attorney? Now, these aren't things that are happening to him. This is, this is happening in his head. Right. They're, they're waiting for him to ask, like, well, when can we now speak to the real attorney? These are not traumatic in light of our topic, but they're the kind of ways that shame operates such that when we do have traumatizing events, this kind of practice takes up residence within my mind and within my body in which I become shame's conveyor belt. And we do this over and over and over and over and over again. And so if we are going to reverse this process, if we're going to reverse this process, there are some things that will be important for us to do. In order for us to reverse the story, as I say, by softening the body. So when when God says, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, it's going to require that I stop trying to get in his way by continuing to pound the living daylights out of myself, if ever so microscopically. One of the first things that we do is that we need to name the event. We name the event. So for our traumas, we name the event. Mm -hmm. And we name, and not just the event of like, oh, my teacher yelled at me in front of the class. Like that is an event. But I want to name what I, I want. I, we want to get this event down into frame by frame by frame within the movie. So I'm not just naming an event. I'm naming a series of events that all took place within about 30 seconds. 
I want to name what it was that was said and how it was said and where you sensed it and felt it and imaged it in your body. I want to name the event. And then we want to describe the manner in which shame accomplishes the things that we were talking about earlier, the disintegration, the isolation, and the self-perpetuation. We want to name where do, in, in, in this moment, what happens to my thoughts and my sensations and my images and my perceptions, just, just to describe it. Not to give into it and, and perpetuate it again, but just to pause and describe it. And remember, from our last episode, we talked about how, especially in that story that you talked about with your daughter, and about how you were able to enable, you, you helped her stay with and come back to within her window of tolerance, strengthening her social engagement system by partnering with her, by connecting with her. And so we need others who we're going to name this event too in the way that we're talking about. That we describe the manner in which shame senses that we're like we, that we dis, that we feel disintegrated that we sense and image and feel and think how those things are being separated how we want to turn and isolate ourselves we want to turn away we want to name those things what are the things that I'm doing right now to turn away again being careful to recognize that even in the act of naming how I'm isolating I can feel ashamed that I'm doing all these things right that's that self perpetuation in case you were wondering exactly you're getting better at that word thank you all right you're becoming perpetually more articulate. <laughs> what you said. You know, I just want to say that um, a couple of weeks ago, we were having a conversation, you and I and Amy, off air. And uh, what the subject was doesn't really, doesn't really matter. But I was, I was naming some things mm-hmm. about struggle that I was having. And, mm-hmm. and then I turned to start naming myself in that struggle, like, like mm-hmm. um, calling myself names, basically. I'm- yeah, I remember. Yeah. And the response that the both of you had hmm. was so unbelievably helpful. For hmm. it, you know, it was wait a minute. Hmm. You know, hmm. you 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 paused for me to hear what I was saying about myself. Hmm. And the both of you pointed out sort of a lie that I was telling myself. Hmm. And that co-regulation that the two of you were doing on my behalf and with me Hmm. um, was just so helpful Hmm. on so many ways, in so many Hmm. layers. Hmm. And Hmm. um, yeah, that's that's a well. I tell you, it's for me Hmm. doing this podcast. That's the the joy of it because I'm. It's this isn't just us sitting here and talking to each other. This is. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's an experience. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's living this out and, uh, embodying it and, yeah. um, yeah, 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 it's, um, well, I mean, I, 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 as we've, as we've said often here, um, you know, one of the reasons why I so look forward to doing this, uh, even though we're not in the same room at the same time. Right. I uh, look forward to our time because I'm looking forward to feeling the presence of you and Amy in my chest. And that it, it, it literally gives my solar plexus right through my pelvis to, my, to like where I'm seated 
right down to my feet, like a sense of groundedness, a sense of like solid. Mm. And that's comforting, this sense of uh, being regulated and being comfortable and confident in my own physicality. And I, um, and, and so, uh, you know, that, that story that you just told, you know, you have uh, offered the same balm for me on many occasions. And, you know, this, this thing about trauma and memory, we haven't talked an awful lot about this, but, you know, we can have these experiences. And this is where shame, you know, we, we talked last in our last episode about how shame rides on these rails often of the dorsal vagal nerve. It's non-myelinated, which means once it fires, it takes a long time to undo it. And shame is like this. Once it fires, it's hard for us to just quickly snap our fingers and just get out of it. Which is why, you know, saying to someone, well, you don't need to be ashamed of that is often really quite unhelpful because you tell me this and yet I am. And so now I'm ashamed because I am ashamed and I shouldn't be ashamed, but I am. And this is how it works. And so this notion of being present for us, of just creating space and identifying like this is the lie, but we want you to know that we're with you. I want you to pay more attention to that. And in so doing, one of the one of the first things that we're then able to do is to recognize where shame is taking up residence in my like where it's taking up residence in my body. If I just think of it as an abstraction, I, oh, I'm ashamed and I feel it, but I'm not noticing it where it is in my body, then I can't really do much about it. But as soon as I notice where it is in my body, if I feel it in my chest, and I say, "Well, put your hand over your chest, hmm. take a breath." Now, as you take a breath, I want you to just pay attention to feeling your hand on your chest and feeling your chest with your hand as you breathe. And in so doing, we've taken an event in which shame is the neurophysiologically mediated experience, and we are changing it. We're not ignoring it. We're not running away from it. We're not dissociating from it. We are with it and looking at it and being present with it. And in that presence, we are moving back into the window with, within the window of tolerance we are strengthening the social engagement system because it is the social engagement system and its activation that is coming to our rescue in the middle of our shame. And typically, our shame acts in such a way that as soon as I have it, I jettison, get, and I'm, I'm turning away from everybody. So nobody's social engagement system ever has a chance to connect with me. Right. But like you and your daughter in, last, in our last episode that we described, and like you and I and Amy have shared on so many occasions. But once we identify these things, we've named the event, we're describing the manner in which shame does what it does, and we've identified where it takes up residence in our body. A next step that is often difficult for us, uh, and, and that is, and this, and this step takes time, uh, but I really appreciate the work of Dan Allender um, in, in his lifetime's worth of work, uh, if you don't know of Dan Allender, I would you know, recommend that you run, don't walk to find his name and uh, the work that he has done uh, over the last 30 years. But in a number of his works, he talks about the need for us to repent of our collaboration with shame and our agreement with the accuser 
in our willingness to believe the lies that we have taken upon ourselves. Now, this is tricky because it can sound at first glance like, well, Kurt, are you saying like this is like what I'm feeling and sensing is like it's all my fault? I'm going to be very clear and say, what happened to you, what happened to you was responsible to someone else. Someone else did this, like th- things that happened to you, there were other people's responsibilities, and that is true and always will be true. The challenge for us is that, you know, if, if I had that single event, right, where when I was 11 years old and whoever she was said something on the trail that I heard that was embarrassing, I then respond to it with a certain way of telling my story about myself from then on out. And she doesn't have anything to do with that. That's all me. Now, Jesus isn't standing hovering and saying, well, Kurt, that's all you. But he is standing and saying, I want you to tell a different story and the role that you play in reinforcing the trauma needs to be reckoned with, needs to be addressed because I want you not to participate with the trauma. I want you not to collaborate with the shame. I want you not to live in agreement with the accuser. And, you know, I've, I've, I've just been discovering in the last several months the, 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 the kind of like small, infinite number of granular moments and ways in which I agree with accuser. I, to this day, I agree with, with the accuser. I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. I'm not, I haven't done this well enough. I haven't, like, there's, like, I, I practice agreeing with the accuser. And the collective long-term effect of this is the weight that I carry that Jesus talks about in Matthew's gospel. All of you who labor and are heavy laden. A lot of that labor is carrying the memory of what happened to me, but a lot of that labor is carrying the memory of what I have repeatedly done to myself over and over and over and over again. And so it's important for us to repent, and repent means simply to turn around and to make a different choice. It does mean refraining and restraining myself from naming these things about myself that I tend to want to name. And it's hard for me to stop doing that. Hard for me to stop that. But we make those confessions and we name those things with each other. And one of the most powerful ways that we can practice doing that is, as we've talked about throughout the course of our time on this podcast, not just this season, but we are, uh, we long for our listeners to be captivated, immersed, and create beauty wherever they are. So one of the ways that my death of a thousand cuts can be mitigated is by uh, putting myself in the path of oncoming beauty. And in those moments when I uh, identify and I'm aware of the things about me that I hate the most, it's then when Jesus invites me to look upon beauty. It's then when Jesus invites me, as Dane Ortland talks about, to consider that he knows exactly what it's like for me to be me, yet without sin. That he knows what it's like for me to carry the load that I carry. And he's not worried, nor is he embarrassed by me. Now, this is hard for me to get around in my head 
But if we are not willing to address the shame that our trauma, that often inhabits so much of our trauma, it's going to be difficult for us to move forward in healing. And I think this is, we talk about this being done in an embodied context then. We're going to do all these things in and by, by this, I don't just mean our own bodies, that we're doing it in the context of community, in the context of other bodies who, like you were describing in our conversation a couple, you know, a couple times back when we were off air, like that realization isn't going to come to me or come to you on our own. Not when I'm stuck down that rabbit hole. It's going to have to come to me from you, from outside my head. And, you know, I, I, I remember this experience of, of, of one patient who had had, you know, just a, this, uh, we talked about it a little bit in, in the, the soul of desire, but there were a, a person who just had a terribly traumatizing set of circumstances uh, that had her telling this same narrative over and over and over again that she just wasn't going to be enough to, she wasn't going to be wanted by a man, she wasn't going to be, uh, let alone wanted by a church community or let alone, you know, this community of people that she was in in our confessional community. And uh, I think we talked a little bit about this situation before, but in the course of the confessional community, there was a throwaway comment that she made that one of the other gentlemen in the in the group picked up on is that she had, you know, was a painter at one point in time. Mm-hmm. And uh, her story is one in which over the course of time of her being seen, soothed, safe, secure, and naming her traumas and doing the embodied work over time and not allowing shame to have not even a square inch of life. That over time, uh, this other group member continued to come back and revisit this question about, like, I really want to see one of your works. And as we've said on a previous episode and as we read in the book, you know, she now has work displayed in many different places because someone came for her. And that trauma that was using shame as a primary weapon in the context of community didn't just find a way for her to reintegrate and come back to baseline and just no longer feel bad, but it enabled her and even commissioned her to be doing things that she'd never really done before. And so I think for our listeners, uh, we want to be people who are unafraid of our shame and who know that Jesus is coming for all of it, has come for all of it, is sitting in the middle of it, and is simply waiting for us to turn our eyes toward him so that we can together do something about it, and as such, begin to recognize the way in which the trauma that has affected our bodies and our brains, in fact, our entire minds, can not only be healed, but can be regenerated to create beauty and goodness in ways that we've never imagined possible. Yeah. You know, in, um, in your book, Soul of Desire, and in our uh, season three of the podcast, we talked about a lot of this stuff um, in depth and talked about the three things of dwelling, gazing, and inquiring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just more and more it's coming back to me that this is the key mm. that um that if if you can find a place with for you know to come 
who you are with your shame, with your trauma and everything else, where you can tell your story more truly. Mm. You can dwell with people. They're going to stay with you Mm. and sit with you in it Mm. that you're going to find, you're going to do this for others and they're going to do it for you as you inquire with them and you ask some questions about, about things and then you're going to sit in one another's gaze and, Mm. Mm. um, and Mm. together, Mm. Mm. you know, Mm. is the only way it can be done. Mm. Um, and we've also talked about the fact that it's not easy. It takes Mm. courage Mm. to do these things. And, you know, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. I've said it myself, (laughs) you know, but I've gotten hurt, you know, Mm. I've, I've shared Mm. things with people and they've, you know, they've shared them with other people when I really, you know, Mm. we were supposed to be confidential and I've heard back that people were saying things, you know, all that stuff. We've all been hurt by other people. And, and I loved the illustration that you had. It's like, it's like putting the bucket down the well and bringing it up and it's dry, but you got to keep putting the bucket down the Mm. well and bring it up. Mm. And eventually, you know, you'll find the people that you can sit with, that you can dwell with, that you can do this work with, that you can share your story mm. with as truly as you can. Mm. And uh, mm. it is, mm. it is, it all leads mm. to beauty. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So Kurt, I know you have um, uh, exercise application that we can, we can do this week to help, you know, help us understand a little better uh, within ourselves what, what we're talking about here. Yeah. So for our exercise this week, a uh, simple way to get at this would be to consider one event in which you've experienced shame that you recall has registered in your body and be attentive to what that embodied experience was like. So you can write about that experience and how you recall responding to it. We've talked already about how would you, how did you find yourself disintegrated? In other words, from what you were sensing separated from what you were imaging and feeling and thinking. How did you find yourself experiencing being in isolation? In what way do you recall that the shame became self-perpetuating? How did you find yourself to be practicing what we're calling these self-inflicted microaggressions and wounds in response to the event? I should have known better. I shouldn't have done this. I should have done that. And those microaggressions just continue on and on and on. Mm. And then, really, Pepper, to your point, who has provided for you an embodied experience of the reversal of those events? And if you can name someone, consider writing to them and thanking them. Mm -hmm. And if you can't name someone, consider one person that you trust and consider sharing with them the things that we've been talking about here. Because in the end, we really do believe that that kind of work really is the basis for what you were talking about just a moment ago, Pepper, this notion that we flourish as humans when we find ourselves in places where we are able to dwell, able to gaze, and able to inquire for the purpose of creating beauty and goodness, even in the face of tribulation, Mm. even in the face of our traumas. Mm. Mm. Kurt? As always, time well spent. I appreciate you so much. You know that, right? Oh, right back at you, man. Right back at you. Yeah. All day, every day. Yes. Stick around, everybody. If you're on YouTube, we've got a conversation coming up with Amy, 
who always enlightens us about what we're trying to say. She makes it so much better than what, what's come out of our mouth. So um, stick around yeah, for no, that. People are like, people are like, waiting. Could we just get to Amy? Could we please get her get her on air? You know, you know that people on YouTube, if they had the data, it would be a fast forward all the way through right. you and I, and just then it like, would just right. be. It's like yeah. I know. How long? Hey, wait. How long is Cut that? To how the long chase. is the podcast? Right. Oh, it's about ten minutes. It's about it's about ten minutes long. Really? Yeah. yeah. The important part. And the best part is at the end. Yes. All right, man. Thank you so much. All right, bud. Until next time. Until next time. Love you. Right. Love you too. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.